Hello, welcome. I'm Mark. Um, it's wonderful to see you this evening, particularly if you're within your first six. Um, I don't preach every week, so please do come back next week. Um, we've been in a series, nor does John lead every week. Isn't John wonderful? I feel like whenever John opens his mouth, it sounds like he's smiling. Um, it just makes me happy too. So anyway, we've been in this series on the cross as we've walked through Lent together. And today, we're going to focus on substitution. Substitution. Last week, Johnny talked about the way Christ's life acts as a ransom, a costly payment for deliverance. Before that, John talked about the way that the cross delivers us from evil, leading us out the way that the Israelites were led out of Egypt. And before that, we talked about the strangeness of the cross and about sin, why the cross was necessary. And it brings us to this point in Lent, our second to last, our penultimate image of atonement and the cross, to a confrontation with Jesus who stands in my place, to thinking about substitution. I think the idea that Jesus suffered in my place is both possibly the most moving and the most provocative of the biblical motifs for atonement. I think we can sometimes talk about it as if Jesus saves me from a rageful God. The notion that my punishment can be visited on someone else somehow doesn't quite sit right. The idea that God doesn't really care who he, punished, who he punishes. That feels wrong, doesn't it? In case you haven't noticed this yet, the cross, the picture of the cross can be really ugly. It can repel your gaze. It can be hard to understand. And I want to show you a picture. This is Francisco de Zerberin's famous depiction of the Lamb of God, bound and defenseless. This is a masterpiece for the students of art among you in capturing texture and using strongly directed light to create shadow. But the idea that Jesus was trussed up like this, left defenseless, brought to slaughter, the idea that this picture is a picture of God the idea that Jesus was here instead of me, it's ugly. The ugliness of the picture tells you about sin. Can you hear the catalog of brokenness in Isaiah's oracle, which Kate read to us? He was despised and rejected by others. He was like someone who we, don't, we can't even bear to look at. He was as one from whom others hide their faces, perhaps because of the brokenness of his body and the deep shame of crucifixion. He was socially ostracized and abandoned even by his friends. Jesus's relationships were broken. He took up our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He was beaten, flogged until the skin was stripped off his body and asphyxiated on a Roman cross. His body was broken. 
And God didn't step in. It was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain. His relationship with God was broken. And why? Sin. Sin is why this happened. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, of each and every one of us, of you and of me. It's not possible to live in this world and escape sin. We are all enmeshed in it. Sin isn't over there in the pantomime villain of a tabloid scandal. It's in each and every human heart. It's a universal acid that eats away at the foundations of everything, disrupting even our highest ideals. Jesus' relationships were broken. His body was broken. His connection with God was broken. He was utterly dehumanized. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The Lord makes his life an offering for sin. What we see in Jesus is the punishment which is due to you and to me. The Bible says that the wages of sin, its logical, inevitable end point, is the utter destruction of everything God purposes for me. The utter destruction of the gift of life that he's given me. The utter destruction of my humanity, my soul. In Jesus, sin was allowed to work out all its implications, to take it all the way through. This is the punishment that was due to you that he took on. It's not possible to consider the cross without feeling the weight of this sin. This sin exists and God will not ignore or excuse it. It's going to be dealt with, all the suffering and all the pain, whether it was done by you or to you, under your control or outside of it. But the way it's going to be dealt with is that it will be put on Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a picture. God's own Son became like a lamb led to the slaughter. The creator of everything gives up all power, unimaginable power, and becomes entwined in sin like a dumb, defenseless animal handed over to the worst of each of us. And in this action, God himself takes on sin. So important. Famous hymn sings about the moment when the father turns his face away. And it's a moving image in a song, but it might not be brilliant theology. You see, if the son is on the cross, it means that God is involved. And when God is involved, you don't get to split up father, son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity is kind of like a package deal. It's three for one. It's the kind of deal that would beat the cost of living, rise, crisis, etc. St. Augustine says it this way, the external works of the Trinity are indivisible. Put simply, everything that the triune God, the Trinity, does in the world 
it does together. It's the Son who becomes incarnate and goes to the cross. But this does not mean that the Father and the Spirit are sat in heaven watching or even turning their faces away. They're involved because it's not possible for God to act separately. God wouldn't be God anymore. When Jesus is on the cross, the Father doesn't hold his nose, look away, and smite his Son. It's far more radical than that. When Jesus is on the cross, he takes sin away from you and me. And he does it by taking sin into God. The way that he takes sin away from me and you is by taking it into God. He takes this deep brokenness into God's own heart. He takes the God-forsakenness of sin into the heart of the Trinity. He takes the breaking of relationship with God that is sin, and he takes it into the eternal relationship of the Trinity. And this is why there's no adequate analogy, because we're at the limits of our language. We're reduced to pictures because it breaks our categories of thought. Think, Try to think this thought for a minute. In Jesus, God... God's self becomes God-forsaken. God-forsakenness becomes something that God invites into God's self. The rupture is literally unimaginable. But in Jesus, God chooses to hold within God's self the not-godness of sin. This is what it means for Jesus to take your punishment. He does it for you. As Paul puts it, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. And he chooses to do this because of you, because of me. God laid on Jesus. God took into himself the iniquity of us all. God did it because he loves you with such a relentless love that he is not willing not to be reconciled with you. God chooses not to let the God-forsakenness of sin be a barrier to you being with him, even though the only way that he can do this is by becoming God-forsaken himself. Instead, he goes there so he can find you there. He goes there so he can find you there. There is nowhere that you can go where God won't pursue you. There is nowhere that is outside of his grace. This is the implication. It is literally not possible for you to outrun God's gracious pursuit. Sin was the last hiding place and Jesus went there. This is what Paul's getting at in 2 Corinthians 5. In verse 21 he says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus becomes 
sin. Sin gets to work out all its implications, the whole nine yards, the whole punishment. Sin going all the way to its wages in death. The end point, the logical, inevitable end point of sin is visible, is, is worked out in Jesus for real. It's not just visible. Jesus becomes sin so that you, a sin-riddled excuse for a human being, at your best, can become the righteousness of God. Don't be too offended. It's me as well. This is the point, though. Jesus didn't go to the cross for the sake of the Father having a cosmic punch bag on which to eternally take out his rage so that he doesn't have to smash you. He went to the cross because God is that committed to you. God is righteous. If we really knew what that meant, it would scare us. God is righteous. And if you're going to stand within the eternally loving communion, which is the Trinity, the whirling dance of exuberant joy that is the spinning energy that underwrites the whole of existence in every single moment, if you're going to get on board with that God, you cannot not be righteous. You have to be reconciled with God. And if you're going to be reconciled, your sins can no longer count against you. You can't be both God forsaken in sin and the righteousness of God until Christ. Jesus is the righteousness of God because he is God. Jesus was God forsaken because he became sin. Jesus is the way because he did it for you. Your sin doesn't count against you because it isn't yours anymore. You don't have a right to it anymore. God laid it on Christ. It's God's sin now. You're no longer a God-forsaken sinner because you are in Christ. Because of what Christ did, you are the righteousness of God. This is what it means for God to justify you, for Christ's death to be for the justification of many. It's not just a word. It's not just a status in the eyes of God. He actually makes you righteous. And this happens when he takes you into Christ. It's not just the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are present at the cross. It's each one of us as well. You are in Christ. Christ's story is your story. And Christ's story is the story of God reconciling the world to himself, making everything righteous, bringing the kingdom of God, making all the sad things come untrue, getting to the reality that fairy tales hint at. When Jesus takes my place, it's not a remote reality that theologians like to argue about, but it doesn't actually impact my life. It's closer than my breath. You were born into a sin-sick story, and I know this because I was too. I don't know what the shape of your story is, but for me, one of the aspects of my sin-sick story revolves around being a good boy. 
being a good boy, that's what's going to make me lovable, right? That's what's going to, that's what's going to make me acceptable. That's how I'm going to succeed in life. Failure is not an option. I can't disappoint people because ultimately I might actually not be worthy of love. You know what? I don't know if it sounds like it, but I can tell you from the inside that that's a lot of pressure to live under. For me, it meant being driven by fear, not drawn by love. And it shaped both my secrets and my successes. Being a good boy didn't actually make me good. It didn't make me better. Do you know what it did? It just made me hide, right? I'd stuff my face with secret sugar when I thought no one was looking and then hate how I looked because good boys weren't fat and didn't even like sugar because they were healthy. And on the successes side, it's much more within my control to be right than to be liked. And if I'm right and you don't like me, then that's your fault. So I went and did a PhD, became a doctor of theology. What am I trying to tell you? I was a sin-riddled excuse for a human being, even at my best. I don't know your sin-sick story. I don't know whether it shares contours with mine, things like fear of failure, fear of rejection, shame, not being lovable, or whether your pain lies in different places. Maybe you have to maintain control, even if it means manipulating others. You might live with the nagging fear that one day people will find out and they won't like you anymore. You might believe that slacking is from the devil and you can only rest when you've succeeded. I don't know where you're driven rather than drawn by love. But I do know this. Jesus took on your story and he offers you his in exchange. Imagine it. It's not necessarily easy to imagine this, so do try. You could stop being driven by fear, by shame. Your life could not be defined by pain anymore because you just don't want to be hurt again. You could live life as God's beloved. The fact that Jesus died for you isn't a remote reality on a Judean hill from 2,000 years ago. It's closer than your breath. It gets into and interacts with the scripts that run in your head when you, when you don't notice them anymore that are destructive. Because this, is, because this is actually who you are if you're in Christ. You actually are God's beloved daughter. You actually are God's beloved son. This is the story that's on offer to you. This is the reality of who you are if you're in Christ. And the invitation is there because Jesus already did his dying. We celebrate it at Easter. That's what we're heading for. We could give you any treat you like and it won't come close to this. You can stop being sin-defined and be drawn into God's love. 
You can. I'm not telling you because I'm brilliant at it. I'm telling you because Jesus offers it. This, I believe, is actually what it means for God to justify you in his cosmic court because Christ has taken your punishment. It changes you. I get to stop being a good boy. I can be in Christ. Takes practice, but that's another sermon. You can too. Christ offers you a new story. Listen to Paul's words again. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. The old has gone. The new is here. On the cross, a beautiful exchange occurs. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that he cared about this in heaven before there was time? Jesus Christ takes your sin-sick story into the heart of God, and he offers you his righteous story instead. He makes you new. He invites you to live a better story. It's one in which you're finally free to risk yourself because you know that you are loved regardless. And you know because God Almighty traded heaven for sheepdom for your sake. It's a story in which you are finally free to spend yourself for others because you don't need to prove that you're enough because God Almighty traded heaven for sheepdom for your sake and that's a long way to come. It's a story in which you are finally free from fear and shame because God's love has drawn it right out of you. He took it on himself instead. He took it on himself instead. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you took, that all the iniquity was laid on you. I want to close by inviting you into this. We are going to pray. This Christ story can be your story. It can be your story. You can be a new creation. Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away your sin. You can be free. You can start living a better story because you can be in Christ. Whatever the impact sin has had on your life, whether it was something done by you or something done to you, it's always both. Whether it was within your control or outside of it, God has taken it into his heart and you don't have to bear that burden anymore. Christ, Christ himself bore the consequences of your sin all the way through. The punishment that brought you peace was on him. And by his wounds, you are healed.